It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each year, the Aspen Institute holds its annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Hundreds of inspired and provocative speakers and thousands of participants descend on the Institute's 40-acre campus, tucked near towering mountain peaks in Aspen, Colorado. We want you to be part of the festival, so we're featuring fascinating conversations with festival speakers throughout the event. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show produced by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Aspen Ideas Festival is jam-packed with on-stage discussions touching on topics such as climate change, U.S. and world politics, psychology, technology, and health. For our series, we've asked a group of journalists to step off the stage and get behind the mic. These podcast takeover hosts handpicked festival speakers for discussions on a myriad of topics. In today's takeover, we're examining the Supreme Court's decision Monday to take the case regarding President Trump's travel ban. The hearing in October will consider the legality of the ban. At the Aspen Ideas Festival Tuesday, former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates joined University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone and former U.S. Solicitor General Neil Katyal to discuss the travel ban. We're including part of their discussion. Later in the show, our takeover host, Perry Peltz, sits down with Neil Katyal. Peltz is a journalist and documentary filmmaker. First, here's part of Tuesday's onstage Aspen Ideas talk. Here's Jeffrey Stone. So, so both of these individuals have been involved in different but important ways in the travel ban issue, um, and I want to turn our attention to that. Um, Neil, by the way, represents the state of Hawaii in that case in the Supreme Court. Um, and Sally, of course, was involved in the Department of Justice there. And so, Sally, I'd like to begin with you. Um, how did you get involved in this? Um, what were your views? Why did you hold the views you did? Why did you do what you did? And were you surprised by what happened? Um, yes, to all of that. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll try to make this brief because I don't want to hog the whole thing here. Um, I got involved in this. It was Friday evening, late afternoon. I was in the car on the way to the airport on Friday, January 27th. And I had actually just finished a meeting at the White House on what's now known on, on the Mike Flynn situation. And I was in the car going back for an event honoring my husband the next night. I got a call from my principal deputy. Um, during the time that I was holdover as acting attorney general, I was able to keep one, one of my assistants that had been there before, and the rest of the political appointees are Trump appointees at this point. And so it's about 5 o'clock or so, or five, between 5 and 6, and Matt calls me and says, you're not going to believe this, but I was just on the New York Times website, and it looks like the president has instituted some sort of travel ban. That's how we found out about it at the Department of Justice. Read about it on the internet. Well, I'm you know, on my way to the plane. I've got my iPad. I'm furiously going on there trying to figure out what it is. I, you know, I go ahead and get on the flight to go back to Atlanta. Happily, we had Wi-Fi. So I'm literally going online to try to find a copy of the executive order so we could get some sense of what this was. And so over the course of that weekend, it was a whole lot of trying to figure out what the heck is this thing and to whom does it apply? Because at the time that I made my decision, it was the first executive order, not the second one that Neil is litigating now. And at that time, we were getting conflicting signals, but when the music stopped, the White House told us that yes, it applied to um, LPRs, lawful permanent residents, people with green cards. 
they would not be allowed to come back into the country <coughs> even though they had legal status here. It applied to people with visas. So we spent most of the yeah. weekend trying to figure out sort of what is this and, and, and what are they trying to accomplish here. And over the course of the weekend, the very next morning, we had to have people in court defending actions that had been filed by various plaintiffs around the country. And so until we could get a handle of what this was and whether we thought it was lawful, my instructions were you can defend on procedural grounds, meaning if a case has been mooted out because someone is admitted, you can defend on procedural grounds, but we're not gonna take a position on the constitutionality until we have a chance to actually figure out whether we think this is constitutional. Um, so come Monday morning, um, I learned that the next day we are gonna have to take a position on whether it's constitutional. So we gathered all of the folks who were involved in this at the Justice Department in my conference room, and that included the Trump administration appointees as well as the DOJ career people, civil division people and otherwise, that were involved in this litigation. And I had gone through, I mean, this is all happening so fast. I'm literally going online to file, find briefs and challenges to see what the challenges are to, to the travel ban. And we went around the table with my asking them, all right, tell me why you think this is lawful. How are we going to defend this? Um, and without revealing sort of our internal discussions here, at the end of that, uh, I was not comfortable that it was in fact lawful or constitutional and kept the senior Trump appointee back to tell him that I was very uneasy with where we were and that I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. And then went back in my office and thought about it more and, and talked with a few people and came ultimately to the conclusion that our defending this travel ban would require me to send lawyers of the Department of Justice into court to say that this ban had nothing to do with religion. It was all based on national security, nothing to do with religion. And I did not believe that to be a defense that was grounded in truth. And I couldn't send Department of Justice lawyers in to defend something based on a defense that I did not believe was grounded in truth. Which then left the dilemma of, okay, so do you just resign at this point then, or do you direct the department not to defend the travel ban? And I'll, you know, I confess to you, this is again all happening in a very compressed period of time. This is Monday afternoon now. Um, I went back and forth on that. Um, there's certainly an argument, and I understand that some people think that I should have just resigned. But sort of the bottom line, on that was is that I didn't feel like I would be doing my job if I just essentially said, I'm out of here. You guys figure this out. It's up to you to go in there and to make a defense that at least we were not comfortable was grounded in truth, but at least I won't be part of it. That would have protected my personal integrity, but I didn't believe that it would have protected the integrity of the Department of Justice, and it wouldn't have been doing my job. So I issued a directive to the Department of Justice, unless and until, um, I was convinced that it was lawful that the Department of Justice would not defend the travel ban. Um, that was late in the afternoon, and um, not surprisingly, I got um, a memo, um, or actually a letter, about 9 o'clock that night um, firing me. So that was that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you aware of other situations where an attorney general or acting attorney general um, refused to obey the orders of the president? You know, I'm not, but this was a very unusual situation in that I learned in the course of this that 
our Office of Legal Counsel had been instructed not to tell me about the work on the travel ban until after it was over and until after the president had executed it. And so normally, what you would have would be a process in this kind of situation where if there's a national security reason to do something, you would confer with the national security agencies before doing it, and you would also confer with the national security experts at the Department of Justice who are going to have to defend it. And that would include the people in our national security division and our civil division who ultimately um, did have to defend this. There was none of that consultation at all, not even notification at all. So I'm not aware of another situation like where, where the Attorney General has done that, but I'm also not aware of a factual situation right. like this before either. Uh, the analogy I was actually thinking of was, was of course, the Saturday Night Massacre. Right. Um, where uh, Elliot Richardson... Sorry, you threw a softball for me over the I plate did, and right, I missed I it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but just to remind anyone who's forgotten that Elliot Richardson and William Ruckelshouse, the uh, Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General, both refused to comply with President Nixon's order that he fire a special... Uh, Prosecutor Archibald Cox, um, but that was the one that occurred to me, yeah. and and they of course took the choice of, of resigning and and rather than um, simply disobeying and waiting to be fired, which they would have been, of course. So so Neil, um, as I mentioned, is representing the state of Hawaii in this case and uh, in the Supreme Court. So why don't you talk a bit about your experience with the case and you know, what's happening and what's going to happen and, you know, all that cool stuff. Okay, sure. Um, and maybe before doing that, I just want to situate Sally's remarks within the role of the Justice Department. When you're the Solicitor General or sometimes the Attorney General, you have two kind of traditions which are not about zealously advocating for winning cases, but to do justice. Those two traditions are that you decline to defend something if you believe it is obviously unconstitutional, <coughs> obviously unconstitutional, or you confess error in a case in which you won in the Court of Appeals and you think you shouldn't have. So every Solicitor General, I did this, and my Republican and Democratic predecessors did, they go to the Supreme Court and say, Supreme Court, that case that we won, we should have lost. So please grant this case, hear it, hear argument, and rule against the Justice Department. I don't think there's a better way of underscoring what Sally's initial remarks were about, about the role of the Justice Department in terms of being the public's lawyer, not the administration's lawyer, than that. And so I think Sally's, when she did what she did on Monday, she was hearkening back to, I think, the best traditions of what the department is about. And resignation doesn't preserve that set of objections. It doesn't explain your reasons. So I'm glad that you wrote the letter that you did. Now, after that letter was written, uh, various folks had these lawsuits, including the state of Washington, over the first executive order uh, that, uh, you know, and after they won in the district court, President Trump, I don't know, called them a so-called judge, the judge who ruled against it, and so on, it then went to the Court of Appeals and was unanimously struck down there as well. The president then pulled back, issued a new executive order a month later, and that new executive order is very much like the first executive order, except it has six countries covered. Iraq is now not covered um, instead of seven. It has a more extensive description of when someone can apply for a waiver. And it says in there that green card holders are now not covered. Um, it tried to provide some facts because in the Court of Appeals argument over the first executive order, the administration lawyer was constantly being asked by the judges, what national security justification do you have? And there was 
as Sally said, nothing in the first executive order. In the second, they tried, they spent a month and they came up with two things. One, that two citizens from Iraq had come to the United States and engaged in terrorism. They forgot that they exempted Iraq from the new executive order. Um, and second, that a Somali child had come at the age of two as a refugee and grew up and committed an act of terror. Um, of course, they forgot that they were exempting children from parts of the executive order too through the waiver provision. So in plus the idea that we're gonna like bar refugees who are two years old who need to be here on humanitarian grounds because one day, 20 years later, they might go out and do something. Well, that just strikes me as not really where the country um, probably is on this set of issues. So in any event, um, you know, after the first executive order was issued, I represent the state of Hawaii on all their Supreme Court matters or a good chunk of them. And I started talking to the, that team, including the Attorney General of Hawaii, Doug Chin, who is an astounding individual who carries, I think, the best traditions of justice that Sally exemplifies um, to the state of Hawaii. And, uh, and we decided to bring a challenge. And at that point, there were other challenges in the system and others went first. But for the second executive order, um, we were ready to go. Uh, we thought it was virtually the same. We filed the lawsuit right away and blocked it from going into effect on the day it was supposed to go into effect, March uh, 15th. Um, then argued it in the Court of Appeals on May 15th, uh, last month. Um, this is probably the most unusual oral argument I've ever had because it was live carried on all the news networks. Um, uh, normally, like Supreme Court arguments, there are no cameras at all. Um, and so it did change, I think, a bit the dynamics of the argument, but also so cool for the public to be able to see this. I mean, uh, and people all over the world to see a full argument. Um, won it in the Court of Appeals, um, I guess last week, feels like, maybe two weeks ago. Um, and then yesterday we had a Supreme Court decision um, on this and the details, it's a complicated decision. They've set the case for argument in the fall, so we'll argue it in the, in the first or second week of October. But they did cut back a little bit on the injunction that the district court had issued in our case. The district court had said no travel ban, that is no, you know, the six countries, people from the six countries who were blocked from coming in, they said all of them could come in, plus the refugee ban, the block on refugees for 120 days, that was also something that the president couldn't do because, as Sally was saying, this was motivated by religion. And that's basically what the president campaigned on. He said, I think Islam hates us. I'm calling for complete and total shutdown of all Muslim immigration. Even when he signs the first executive order, he reads the title, looks up at the camera and says, we all know what that means. Um, and there were a whole bunch of other things that the president has done while president to reinforce the idea that this is truly a Muslim ban. So what the Supreme Court yesterday said is, that's absolutely fine, the challenge, we're gonna let it stand for people who have some connection to the United States. So a refugee who's sponsored by a church group who's made contacts, or a University of Hawaii student who's coming, or we also represent the imam in the largest uh, mosque in Honolulu uh, who has a mother-in-law from Syria. All those people and people like them are fine, which is effectively actually everyone who is gonna come in in the 90 and 120 day period. So. Um, you know, the president declared victory yesterday, um, and I guess it's a victory compared to his, you know, resounding 100% losses up until now in every other court. But if those are the kinds of victories the president, you know, has, you know, I hope he has more of them. Because at the end of the day, it's a six to three decision yesterday from the United States Supreme Court saying 
the vast, vast bulk of the Muslim ban, the refugee ban, the travel ban cannot go into effect until they hear argument in October. And I am not aware of another instance in the United States history in which a president in his first 150 days has said, has been told by the courts, you can't do something that you claim you need on national security grounds. I mean, that is an astounding thing to happen in the first 150 days <coughs> and underscores why this panel is so important because we are seeing an unprecedented threat to the rule of law um, by this president. And I don't think it's a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. This is just a pure constitutional civics issue. Former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates was on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival with Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone and former U.S. Solicitor General Neil Caudill. Their conversation happened Tuesday, one day after the Supreme Court agreed to take the travel ban case. You're listening to the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast takeover series. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Our takeover host, Perry Peltz, sat down with Neil Caudill after his Aspen Ideas discussion. Here's their conversation. I am so pleased to be sitting here with Neil Katyal. Neil is a law professor at Georgetown University and the former acting Solicitor General of the United States. Get this, he has argued 34 cases in front of the Supreme Court and has most recently argued the travel ban case on behalf of the state of Hawaii against President Trump in the Court of Appeals. Neil, welcome. So great to have you here. Thank you. It's fabulous to be here with you. Not bad to be in Aspen either, is it? Always the best. Yeah, no, it's good. So you just came in and told me that you just recently heard some news. Tell everybody about what you just heard. You know, in the past two days, the Supreme Court just went out of session really this morning. And so they're announcing all the cases that they're going to hear. And this morning, just an hour ago, they agreed to hear a case of mine called Cyan, which is about the securities laws, um, an important case about that. Now, yesterday, of course, we had some other bigger news um, in the, you know, sense that the Supreme Court agreed to hear the state of Hawaii's challenge to President Trump's, you know, so-called Muslim ban. The uh, policy that he has enacted, which has said that uh, that people from six overwhelmingly Muslim countries cannot come to the United States, and that all refugees can't come to the United States for 120 days. Something that you know, in my view, really does betray both our constitutional principles about establishment of religion, but also really not who America is when you think about the grave humanitarian crisis in other countries and. The idea that we're going to close our shores altogether, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty disturbing notion. You know, I don't have to tell you because I'm sure you know that the president declared yesterday's decision a clear victory for our national security. Agree or disagree? Oh, yeah, disagree. I mean, in <laughs> fact, he said it was unanimous victory for him. Um, and look, if, if he wants victories like that, I am more than happy to give him victories like that every day of the week. Um, you know, what the Supreme Court did yesterday by a six to three decision against him, not 9-0 in his favor, was to say that the vast bulk of the travel ban, the refugee ban, can't go into effect. And, um, you know, that's a really remarkable thing if you think about it historically. I mean, the Supreme Court, ever since our founding, has really not wanted to interfere with a president as they make what they call national security decisions. You know, these are nine generalist judges. They don't get intelligence briefings or learn about um, 
how you know security threats unfold in real time. So they tend to defer to presidents. And you know, I, I used to joke with my constitutional law students. You know, if you're the president in a time of armed conflict, you really have to try to get your case rejected at the U.S. Supreme Court. Like you got to work at it. It's kind of like failing a class at Yale. You got to really try to to, to fail. And um, you know, uh, it's remarkable that here we're not even 150 days in to the new administration, and already the Supreme Court, by a six to three decision, has said, you know, Mr. President. Your travel ban, the vast, vast uh, provisions of it can't go into effect. That is a striking thing. Okay, but yet it was six to three. There are three. Tell us a little bit, of course, one of them is Gorsuch, the latest appointment to the Supreme Court. What are, do you have any concerns sitting here at this moment about the future of uh, Trump's so-called travel ban? So, you know, I, you know, because the case is pending, you know, my rule is to not, you mm-hmm. know, kind of proclaim I'm going to win or anything like that. I mean, certainly the White House and Justice Department have been saying such things, but, but that's not the way I do business. Um, and I do think that the travel ban is gravely unconstitutional and a flat violation of the immigration laws that Congress has laid down. And I think that, you know, if one views it just an objective observer looks at it, I think that it's deeply, deeply illegal. And, you know, I was heartened by the fact that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy did not join Justice Thomas's three justice opinion yesterday. Um, And that's a pretty, you know, remarkable thing. But we'll have to see. I mean, the court yesterday had a very brief opinion, just 12 pages long, um, doesn't get into all the details or anything like that. They've left that for the oral argument, which will take place in October. What's it like to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court? It's striking to me that you have done this 34 times, soon to be, sounds like 35. What's that, what's that like? Um, it, there's no doubt. It's scary. Um, is it? It's scary in a way that, um, that is not like many other things in professional life because you know that if you really mess up, your career is entirely over. It's more like the Olympics than it is. No pressure like, there. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's a fair amount of pressure. Um, so that's that's one overwhelming feeling I always have every time I'm up there. But another one is really inspirational. Um, you know, this uh, this is the one branch of government that really works. Um, all nine of them are working super hard. They're all deeply analytic and smart. They've read every brief. They've read every footnote. And they're asking you super hard questions. And... You know, one of the things I am so sad about is that we don't have cameras in the U.S. Supreme Court so that all Americans could see what I see every time I'm up there, which is nine people. They come at things from very different political perspectives and kind of jurisprudential perspectives, even regional, you know, where they grew up and stuff, religious, all sorts of different things being thrown into this matrix. And yet they work super hard. They get along extremely well and they try and provide you know, reasoned deliberation as opposed to fistfights and other things. And it's a real model for our democracy. But I will tell you, you know, every time you go up there, you know, you get, you're scared. Um, It's, you know, things can happen. It's dynamic. They are really smart. And they know where the weaknesses in your case are every time. I would imagine as an intellectual matter, it must be just the ultimate exercise in in what you do. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's it's deeply intellectual um, and satisfying. Um, but it, it's stressful. You know, I was up there 
uh, argued seven cases this last year and six separate oral arguments. And, you know, one of my, two of my arguments were a day apart and totally different subjects. And so you've got to just sit there and like try and cram it's like finals. Or I something was about like to say that. it's worse than having two finals on two separate yeah. days. I'm, yeah, it's it, it's. Yeah, I don't it's recommend crazy. it. I don't, don't recommend it. It's it's hard. Um, you know, you just said, you just spoke the word democracy, and I was had the had the honor really of being at the last session that you just did here at the Ideas Festival when you were with Sally Yates, and um, she spoke about the fact about how Americans about how we should have great pride in our Justice Department and faith that truth will prevail. What, when you heard her speaking that, given what she has experienced and gone through, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agreed with what Sally Yates said today. I mean, you know, I love the U.S. Justice Department. I think it is one of the crown jewels in our democracy. Um, People, career people, going there to try and, you know, bust criminals or to protect our civil rights. to protect those who are disabled, you know, all sorts of lovely things the department does. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes um, politics can compromise what the department does. I do think politics compromised what the department did with the travel ban stuff. I mean, you know, Sally Yates was not even told about the travel ban. She found out about it from the news. That she was, was the, striking to me hearing that, that somebody from the Justice Department, one of her, uh, one of the people who worked for her, called her up and said, you're not going to believe what I'm seeing online. Yeah. How is that possible? Right. I mean, she is the Attorney General of the United States at that point. She was in an acting capacity, but she has the full powers of the Attorney General, you know, which is, of course, charged with defending the travel ban, among other things, and providing national security advice. And... You know, it is a deeply corrosive thing when the White House orders junior people at the Justice Department to work on the travel ban, but it expressly orders them not to tell the attorney general about it. That is unforgivable in my book. Um, That is, you know, and that contributes to the crazy, ridiculous policy that we got, you know, which has nothing to do with national security. It has a lot to do with fulfilling President Trump's campaign promise, which was, you know, I quote, I think Islam hates us and calling for, quote, complete and total shutdown of Muslim immigration. You know, when it, it, for those of us who are not involved in the law, um, in you look at this, what's happening now under this administration, and it feels like many of our democratic institutions are under pressure. I mean, it's the only way that I can think of it. It's like there's just so much coming down to bear. Um, again, I'm an outsider to you, are you worried about what you're seeing happening? Do you think ultimately that justice will prevail? Well, I'm an optimist. So, um, and I think our American system gives us reason for optimism. I think our founders were particularly brilliant in the way they devised checks and balances designed First Amendment, freedom of speech and press that's designed to keep government leaders on their toes. So there's a lot of good stuff out there um, but I do think we're seeing an unprecedented threat to the rule of law in our lifetimes. I, I've not unprecedented. Unprecedented. I don't think of any time in which presidents have said when they lose cases, "Oh, you're a so-called judge," or all the insulting invective that we've heard. I mean, you know, my my uh, uh, you know junior high student, my son does debate, and 
you know, when he loses in debate, sometimes he'll say, oh, I had a terrible judge. And mm-hmm. we'll sit and we'll talk about it. And I'm like, no, you know, your job is to persuade, you know, and, you know, don't go calling them names. And that's just some local judge or something. But here yeah. we're talking about, you know, judges who have been confirmed sometimes unanimously by the United States Senate, nominated by presidents, and to go and attack them the way this president has, I think it's um, unforgivable. Let's talk about you a little bit. I was also struck by the story that you were talking about when you were representing the driver for Osama bin Laden. Can you tell us a little bit about the story that you shared? Sure. Um, You know, I came out of law school. um, I was clerking um, uh, for Justice Breyer on the Supreme Court and then was offered a job to be national security advisor at the Justice Department. Um, and I love that job. It was, I was 27 years old and it was all sorts of really fascinating national security issues. And I was definitely known as a hawk, uh, in the national security space. And I thought my dream job would be to be one day national security advisor, um, at the white house to a president. Um, and then, you know, after the horrible attacks on September 11th, I thought about different things I could do and, you know, talked about working with first responders and stuff. And then something really stark happened. The president issued a order for military trials at Guantanamo Bay and said that um, he could write all of the rules for the trials and handpick the defendants and handpick the prosecutors, handpick the defense attorneys, handpick the judges, handpick the court of appeals judges. Um, define the rights the defendants had, which he said had no rights, zero rights, um, define the punishments, which he said included the death penalty. And then the very last lines of that presidential order said, the federal courts have no business reviewing what I'm doing at Guantanamo Bay. And it was at that point that I said to myself, you know, I got to do something. Um, you know, I have a national security background and a constitutional law background. I've never really been a litigator, never really been in court. But I kind of felt it was my duty um, to have someone particularly who was actually, you know, a hawk on national security stuff say, this isn't the way we do our national security. And so I started looking for a case. And ultimately, the case that I was worked to get was uh, with the JAG attorneys um, from the Navy was to represent bin Laden's driver. And I thought to myself, you know, probably not going to be national security advisor to a president if I take that case. But, you know, I thought that the calling of what being a lawyer is all about is really about a case like that. And I felt so fortunate in the opportunities my country had given me. And I felt like, you know, I had to do this back. And so that actually became my very first U.S. Supreme Court case. I was nervous as heck. I, um, I mooted that has practiced the case 15 times. Um, I went all over the country. I took a legal pad out of all the people who scared me the most. And I asked them, would you, or would you let me practice the argument in front of you? Um, and then, um, I did it and ultimately we won in, you know, actually, um, 11 years ago, uh, tomorrow, um, we won that case and it was, you know, it shut down the Guantanamo military trial system, But it also said the Geneva Conventions applied to the war on terror worldwide, which meant that ghost prisons had to end and waterboarding and all sorts of things like that. And, you know, I was at that point 36 years old and had certainly never done anything like that before. Um, But that started launching me in the direction of Supreme Court advocacy. It's interesting because I'd love you to tell our listeners what that driver said to you, the question that he asked you when you first met him, because it is the question that I think many people in the audience had. Yeah. 
So, you know, I've been trying to meet the driver for 10 months and um, ultimately, you know, the Justice Department wasn't necessarily letting me go, but then I eventually got down there and they made it hard. It was like a 30 hour trip door to door. But I get there and he looks at me and he kicks everyone else out of the room, the military attorneys, everyone except the translator. And I think he's going to yell at me because he's been in solitary confinement for 10 months. He hasn't seen another face. How is it possible to be in confinement for 10 months? So he had, they had built him a kind of almost cabin was from the outside. They made it look big, but actually it had all these false walls. So when you go in, it was a very small cubicle, but they, the media was allowed to take pictures. And so they're like, oh, he's living in this big house. But the big house actually had false walls. So it was just a small little thing and food was passed to him through a slot and um, he was allowed one hour of exercise at night uh, six days a week um, but uh, the guards wore masks so he hadn't actually seen a face um, and you know so I was worried when he kicked yeah. everyone out that he was going to yell at me and certainly would have been his right um, but he actually just said you know wh- why are you doing this why are you representing me And it took me a long time to answer that because it's a deep kind of fundamental question. And I was good at the line-by-line arguments about why Guantanamo was unconstitutional or something. But, you know, I hadn't taken that step back to say, what's this about? And ultimately, after about a minute, I told him, well, here's why I'm doing this case. Because my parents came to this country from India, from another land, and they came here not because of the quality of its sports teams or the quality of its soil, but because of a very simple thing, which is they knew they could land on its shores and be treated fairly. Maybe not perfectly, but fairly and indeed better than any other country on earth. And, you know, I told Mr. Hamdan, the driver, that had always been my experience with the United States and why I'm so patriotic. I love this country. I mean, the country's given me everything. And I said to him, you know, it was only when the president issued that Guantanamo trial order that I felt like that vision of America, my vision, my parents' vision, was really under attack because what the president had done for the first time, no president had ever done this in U.S. history. He said, if you are a foreigner, if you're a green card holder, like 12 million Americans, or if you're one of the 5 billion people around the planet and you get accused of a crime, we can try you in these fake military trials at Guantanamo. But if you're a United States citizen, And you commit not just some little rinky-dink crime, but you detonate a weapon of mass destruction or anything, doesn't matter what, then you get the Cadillac version of justice, the American civil trial system. And no president had ever done that. We'd always had one trial system, not two. And that, to me, was a fundamental violation about what America stands for. And so we brought that case and ultimately won it five to three in the Supreme Court. Which is really an incredible story. Um, we are here at the Ideas Festival talking about, of course, ideas. What is it, what's the one thing, one thought, idea that you would like our listeners to know? Well, you know, I'm seeing so many children, particularly, you know, Muslim children, feeling like, what happened to our country? And so many other people saying that. And it is true, if you look at the president and his tweets, you can get a little bit saddened about where we are. And scared. And scared. And I, but I, I also, there's another narrative happening. There are people all over this country who are saying, this isn't what America is. We're a pluribus unum. That's our national motto. Out of many, one. Out of many, one. And 
you know, you have technology companies and state attorneys generals and big other companies and, you know, Republican national security officials and journalists, Republican journalists who were saying, this is outrageous. This is an assault on the rule of law. It's assault on what we stand for as Americans. And I hope that message doesn't get drowned out just because the president has a bullhorn. And, you know, I certainly think it's my job to, you know, educate the courts about what that message is about and what America stands for. Um, but I think it's also, you know, your listeners as well. I mean, you know, these are issues that cut at the heart of what the American experiment is all about. And we can go in one of two directions, either in the direction of inclusiveness and e pluribus unum and checks and balances and the idea that no one leader has all the answers. Or we can go in the idea that Trump has had, which is, I know what's best, and the federal courts can't even review what I'm doing because that itself, just hearing these cases, poses a threat to our national security. And, you know, that's a ludicrous proposition. Um, and I think all Americans, it doesn't matter what your politics are, should reject it. Neil Katyal. Neil, thank you so much. Thank you for thank your you. work and thank you for your time today. Thank you. We appreciate it. Neil Katyal is the former acting Solicitor General of the United States and Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to our podcast takeover series at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me. Audio engineering by Corby Anderson and SiriusXM. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.